had a dream about this place. Welcome to Ghost Stories for the End of the World. This one tonight is a little bit different. This is the epilogue epilogue of the Octopus series. It's kind of going to be a combined discussion about our correspondence with Bill Hamilton. It's kind of going to be a behind-the-scenes documentary in some ways as well. And I guess we're just going to shoot the shit about uh, little threads here and there uh, of the, the overall story that we still find really interesting and that we, we maybe want to return to. Um, and I, I figured, well, we figured we would just begin by going into the emails really, because when we were kicking it back and forth about whether or not to get in touch with Bill Hamilton, I think the, my main concern was that he would, he would not appreciate (laughs) these two random guys sort of getting in touch with him. Um, two more in a long line of random guys who want to know more about his software and how he was screwed by the justice department. But, um, he actually turned out to be a really cool guy. I think, would you agree? Oh, absolutely. You know, um, his answers are rich in details. Um, you know, he is, has extraordinary recall of names and places, dates, events. Um, and he, with enormous good humor, probably recounted things to us that he had already told to other people. God knows how many times. Because again, the the promise story goes back 40 years now. Bill Hamilton's been talking about this for 40 years. There's been people, you know, calling him him up, sending him emails, sending him letters, saying, tell us how you were screwed. And and he's been telling that story for 40 years. So uh, it was, yes, it was with trepidation. That, that I thought about contacting him. One thing that I was struck by is, I mean, you mentioned this just before we actually started recording this episode, which is this story is full of like con men, bullshit artists, you know, burnouts, uh, people who have every reason in the world to lie. But what really stands out about Bill is the story has not changed in 40 years of telling it. So... It was, uh, yeah, it was, it, it felt like someone was there kind of keeping our feet planted on the ground, you know, especially towards the second half of the, uh, the series when, um, things were starting to get pretty crazy, like in terms of the research and where it was taking us. No, it was, it was a very grounded, I'd say, um, series of answers back to our, our questions. Um, and, and we can, something we could discuss when we, in, you know, as we read out the emails or read out the summaries for the emails, um, is Bill Hamilton ends up confirming things that that we had, you know, that were extrapolations or or reasoned um, suppositions on our part. Um, essentially, you know, it, it it felt good reading his answers back to some of my questions um, because it, I mean his answers end up confirming my understanding of the story and how we told the story. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It felt good to be right. You know, Yeah. it felt, it felt good to have like read the material, thought about the implications of what we were reading, drawn some, like, I think quite conservative connections and conclusions, really. Like we didn't get too crazy. And yet then, yeah, when, when we ran it past Bill after the fact, then he was like, Oh, this happened, that happened 
thus confirming what we've been talking about. Um, I very rarely kind of toot my own horn on this show, but I was I was quite proud of his birth there. Yes, exactly. Um, I can. It's it's something I can always be uh, proud of. Is we're probably one of the few people on the planet who has actually told a coherent, sensible promise story. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm. I think for me, actually, just working on this series because I think I've told you before, but the the way I discovered promise was trawling forums when I first got the internet, like back in 2002 or something. And I was looking for, um, because I was a cool, I was a really cool kid, you know? So I was looking for like 9-11 footage. And mm -hmm. I remember just finding forums where people would be talking about this computer software and how it may have been used for particular parts of the day. And that was promise. And then just kind of going down the rabbit hole. So this thing has been with me for like, 20 something years now, 22 years nearly, just always somewhere at the back of my mind, promise. And then from there, Danny Casolaro, and from there, the octopus and so on and so forth. So um, yeah, I can't remember where I was going with this when I started talking. Oh, that was it. It feels good that we finally nailed down a lot of things that have bothered me for 20 something years that I've never really been able to find any uh, concrete uh, material on so that helped and just figuring out what promise actually did was very good after 22 years of reading about it um that was pretty satisfying as well oh yeah absolutely yeah i was i i agree with you in that you know i'm uh i was also one of the the seekers who was in you know just insanely cool in my in my own time and, and at my and at my young age who spent um years of years of my life uh, in my prime, you know, you uh, on dial-up internet, um, reading crazy websites as used to exist in the much crazier internet. Um, and one of the, and like, I guess like other seekers, um, one of the pieces of secret history that, that you would always stumble upon um, aside from, you know, like, uh, um, what, they stole JFK's brain or, you know, what it was, the, the gemstone files, um, was promise. And as much as people talked about it, they, there wasn't a lot there. You know, there was just, there was um, some supposition and some stories and, you know, kind of tie it into some, you know, oftentimes um, crazy things. But um, I always wanted to know more. I wanted to answer this this question. I'm, I'm not certain why it grabbed onto me so much. Yeah, I'm the same because I'll be honest, like computer, like espionage and stuff, it's never really done anything for me, but for some fucking reason, like promise just had me in its grip, you know, from the, the second I first read about it. And I could not explain, I could not tell you why to this day, why it became such a, an enduring fascination for me. I agree. I mean, it's all I can do is, is guess and, and say just, you know, it's kind of a combination of this thing that is shrouded in mystery. And that becomes part of the story as it's conveyed, um, you know, throughout the internet. And so again, you're almost, you're almost, you're primed for the mystery and then, and then you get the mystery. I think, yeah, that there's kind of a perfect marriage between the promise story and I guess like forums culture, you know, like, so if you were of a certain age and you were on the internet around the turn of the millennium or something, especially, then you, you find in stuff like promise out and it's just as 9-11 happens as well. And I guess it's somehow it's all sort of connected, you know, it's all swirling around and it, it just sort of pulls you in. Um, especially when you read about like what happened to Danny Casolaro and, you know, all this other stuff that's connected to it. I mean, how could you not become fascinated by it really? Oh yeah. And I think it's maybe something else is that, you know, again, in a lot of these stories, it's, or a lot of these, I guess, uh, intelligence or espionage stories is what is being discussed is either something really, really abstract, like, Oh, just military secrets, 
It's like military secrets of what? Or it will be um, just some obscure concept or, or the notion of having to do, you know, uh, counter espionage or, or spies or, or some knowledge is being stolen. But in, but in the promise story, it was always this thing that had this name and the name was always in capital letters. Um, and it was, it was always presented as a real deal item that existed in the world. Um, this wasn't, again, this isn't an abstract concept. This isn't a collection of stories about military, again, military secrets being stolen. And then it's kind of all compressed into one. This isn't, you know, this isn't an agent's narrative. This isn't the, you know, this isn't the tale of, of a mole who, you know, who blew up uh, dozens of people. It's this thing that is there. And as much as people talked about it, there was never really any explanation or any real very detailed or, I guess, a kind of a thoughtful critique of what was really, you know, what would be at the heart of this story. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the thing I found the most frustrating was figuring out what the fuck promise actually was because there were so many different accounts of what it could do. And I remember um, the the uh, Ken Thomas, Jim Keith book, The Octopus, the one that everybody, it's kind of the go-to book if you want to know about Inslaw and Danny Casolara. I think it's like very early on in the book, even they say something like, um, nobody's really sure why Promise was worth stealing because nobody's really sure what it was about it that made it so unique and special, you know? So then it's kind of a process of actually digging in and figuring that out. Well, it was obviously stolen, so so why, you know? And then you get into the whole trapdoor stuff. Um, but yeah, it's it. I must admit, when we first sort of decided, right, we're going to get in touch with Bill Hamilton, I was very nervous that he was just. I'd, I guess part of this is kind of um an eager thing, but I was very nervous that he was just going to demolish everything. We, we probably should have got in touch with him before we started, but um, I was worried that he was going to um, give us answers that basically demolished the work that we'd done on like the first four or five episodes. <laughs> I was so scared. Uh, but then, yeah, um, it turned out to be pretty cool. No, I, I can, no, I can, yeah, I can remember that, that, yeah, that, that conversation. And, and I did feel that, you know, myself to a degree of the, oh my God, yes, we're, what we're going to find out, um, we're not going to like because it's going to make us look like fools. Um, and at the time, I, 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 I tried to mask that with some bravado of like, well, geez, if we end up being fools, that's, hey, that's at least content for another episode. Yeah, at least we did it by our own hand, damn it, you know. <laughs> um, but again, as as turned out, uh, we landed this one. We landed it. We we have fucking reeled the octopus right out of the briny depths, and it's now splatting around on the the what the fuck is it? The deck of the boat? I don't the know deck. what it is. In my head, when I make this analogy, I'm always picturing myself on a little rubber. So I don't know mm -hmm. what you would call that. The floor, the floor of the rubber, whatever. Or I mean, um, I mean, you know, the decking. I mean, the deck. The decking. The decking of the rubber. We should point out as well that in the co the course of our correspondence with Bill Hamilton, um, we asked him some things and he gave us some answers that he then asked us not to share. Um, so we are giving you a kind of very streamlined version of the conversation that we had with him. Um, but it's, yeah, there's the certain things that he, and I hate to do this. I don't want to be one of these guys who's like kind of a, a tease about this sort of thing, but... He did tell us some shit that blew my mind. I don't know about you, but, and it's, um, yeah, it's, it, 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 it's one of those strange situations where you feel like, well, you do know something that a lot of people don't know or several some things and, um, you just can't tell anybody. So I was, I was quite, um, proud that he trusted us as suppose, to share that stuff with us. Yes, absolutely. And, um, Again, I, I think you agree. It's it's 
bringing this up not to taunt the listener with yet another piece of secret, you know, knowledge that that you know again we're just we're just talking about how good something tastes, but but you can never taste that. Um, is to again we I would say we cleared what we were going to present out of Bill ha- out of uh, the correspondence with Bill Hamilton with Bill Hamilton. So it's not like we're. I would say um, we're not um, ex- we're not going to be exposing anything huge tonight or anything. But um, I think that what he shared with us that we are allowed to in turn share with you, I think it's pretty interesting all the same, to be honest. Yes. And um, yeah, and I think it was just a, again, it was a, a, a it was a remarkable, um, I guess, show of, of trust and faith into people that he had never met who just sent him an email out of the blue one day. Yeah. And, and just before we get into it, I just want to say Bill Hamilton is one hell of a poster. Um, this is a guy that responds to his emails mm-hmm. in like 45 minutes or an hour. Yep. Yep. <laughs> uh, um, He's committed. So yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of posting energy there. Yep. Yep. I'm trying to figure out how we should actually do this. Um, I still don't have an idea. I don't think it'd be very entertaining if we just read this out word for word, but yeah, the the general gist. I mean, the first thing off the bat that I would say that I found very interesting is when we asked him, you know, given his background in intelligence and the people who were involved in the Inslaw deal with the Justice Department to install Promise, he will have known who they were, you know, just by reputation. I asked him if he felt any uh, trepidation about that or any suspicion that they might attempt something underhanded. And he actually said that um, he didn't, he he wasn't worried at all um, because I'd asked him, given the fact that you used to work in the intelligence community, were you worried for those reasons? And yeah, he said, actually, I, I did not have uh, such fears from my work in US intelligence, but I gradually learned the extent of government malfeasance against Inslaw. I thought that was very interesting that nothing in his time at the NSA had given him cause to think that anything might go wrong here. I think it's it's indicative, I guess, of, of the, I, you know, maybe this is injudicious speculation, but of just his his worldview at the time. Um, and I think just the worldview of almost that that generation. I think I've said before, but I might have said this on the show actually, but I think that when people say like, and I do it all the time, I'm as guilty of this as, uh, as anybody, but when people say like the CIA did something or the NSA did something, that kind of, I would say, elides the fact that those, the intelligence, every intelligence agency relies on having uh, two forms of itself existing, yeah, coexisting. So you have like the the kind of NSA that Bill Hamilton uh, found like a pleasant place to work, you know, um, where it's these kind of, I guess, true believers who are quite idealistic and whatnot. And then you have the flip side of that, the inverse, you know. So like at the CIA, you, you have people who can plausibly say, I don't know anything about, cocaine trafficking uh, with the Contras or anything like that. But then you do, you have that flip side. You have the people who are actually involved in the shit that, you know, we talk about like on the show. Um, And I think that a large part of why they survive is because they have these two sides to them. You know, they need, they need Bill Hamilton's so that, (laughs) you know, the inverse of that can exist as well. Yeah. Otherwise it totally falls apart. Yeah, yeah, it's completely false apart. If it was just non-stop cocaine trafficking, presidential assassinations and whatever, it it wouldn't last the course. You need that more palatable sort of uh, publicly presentable sort of side to things. You need someone to actually do the, what, to work in the business of what actual intelligence collection. <laughs> yeah, analysis, yeah, yeah, um, basically. Rather than just, just running dope. Um, yeah. Almost something about the, again, this split, this dual nature of the, you know, the people who are, who are committed and then the, the people who then, you know, really swim in the, what, in the, in, in 
the backwash of those those people who are committed is it almost it reminds me of the the narratives you will see occasionally from organized crime figures yeah and and yes you know 75 85 percent of them are you know it, again it, it, it's it's almost conventional at this point that it's oh my god it, it's everyone's just in it for the money and there's no respect and blah 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 um you know we're all, all stab each other in the back but occasionally you do get a true believer yeah who says no i got this in there because i wanted to be a man of respect you know just just a real defined moral code yeah and 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 way of interacting with the world that was at odds with almost the wider organization so it was it was quite interesting then to sort of follow up with that i suppose when we asked him about how this whole deal really had like shaped his his outlook and he is not a true believer anymore <laughs> we'll put it like that um i think he said words to the effect of it it's pretty obvious that there is no effective congressional oversight of the intelligence community um and in fact went on to say it seems clear that it's an untenable threat to democracy so that's quite the 180 from where he was uh, when they were first signing the, the contracts with the Justice Department. Mm -hmm. Some of the questions we asked, um, I, I define them as, as almost like some biographical questions. I was, I was always interested, really from the beginning, about the man, you know, yeah. what he was thinking at the time, you know, what was going through his head as he was going through all these different stages. Yeah. Um, and he very kindly did describe some of these things. Uh, uh -huh. One of the things that he discussed is his time before Promise. Um, because again, it, it's you have the the figure of Bill Hamilton is described in, in stories and, and journal articles, things like that. And it's mentioned that he works for the NSA or work for intelligence. And it doesn't actually really go any beyond that. It's like he it, you know, it'll be, he worked for the NSA and then he started this company. Um, but, you know, really come to find out um, at the time that he had started Inslaw, at least this is my reading from his, his timeline, um, he had been working for, again, working for the NSA at Fort Meade. Um, and he was a translator. He speaks Vietnamese, speaks it well enough to do translations of Vietnamese. Um, and I guess I, I hadn't I, I hadn't known that about the guy before. The one thing that I thought was interesting about that, I mean, this is really minor, but um, he said that he worked doing contract translations. Now, what I'd read was that he actually wrote an early kind of translation software. He wrote the code for that, and they were using that in like the early 70s or something. But I didn't get that meaning from his answer. I just, I understood it to mean he was literally just pen to paper, kind of translating Vietnamese documents into English. Uh, so I'm not really entirely sure if he did actually write this uh, software or not. I guess this is something that will come up again is, yes, there were other questions that, that I, I, I probably should have asked the guy and I thought it's like, well, geez, it would have been great if I would have asked him this or that. Oh, man, don't, don't even get me started. There's so many things that like, after the fact, I just kept thinking, shit, I should have asked him about this. I should have asked him about that. I should have asked him about 9-11. Oh, yeah. I yeah. should have asked him about that. But almost like, I, yeah, I, I really, I don't want to ask the guy any <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. Because I suppose in a lot of ways, the type of question you're asking him is actually communicating something about you, you know, in a strange way, like when you use Promise. So you don't want to hit him with the 9-11 shit right off the bat. Um, that might, that might uh, cast something of a shadow over the rest of the conversation. So, do you know, I will, yeah, but, sorry, this is just one of the thing I will say is, um, I was surprised or maybe not surprised, but I did find it interesting that it was the, uh, the contract dispute that soured his view of the intelligence community and not his time in Vietnam. Uh, <laughs> I thought that was an interesting, uh, path to uh, cynicism over the role of the intelligence community. Yeah, the, well, it was the contract dispute. I'd almost say that was that was later, but he's just, he describes in his emails that um, he had, uh, you know, no interest in pursuing the U.S. intelligence community as a promised customer. Uh, yeah. Because he, he found the, 
the the secrecy requirements to be too too binding. Um, interestingly, it's it's yeah the guy left the intelligence services because he didn't he didn't like how they how they controlled information and you know made it impossible to talk about things, and so which I guess kind of deals with well geez was did he then start in's law with the idea of of servicing the intelligence community and the answer is no he wanted to leave he wanted to leave that behind yeah he was ready to move on sort of break out um this is there was something we asked him about the trapdoor and how that might have worked in uh context of the 80s and 90s and this is something that i found really interesting because he said, like, I would have no idea about how a trapdoor would actually work in the software. Um, but I've read in other sort of interviews with him that he has been informed multiple times that they did install a trapdoor in it. But I think his issue was always more with the theft. And I guess it's really almost the question that, that we asked him, or at least that I had asked him, um, uh, was almost explicitly of you know, describe to me how this may have worked at the time, given your understanding at the time. You know, if it was 1980, you know, 1985, and someone asked you to describe how, how a trapdoor or a backdoor would work, how would you describe it? Um, and that was, yeah, his answer was, was, was interesting, um, to say the least. It, it's in part because it was just like, again, his answer was, well, no, he can't, he can't answer that because he wouldn't know. That, that isn't, Almost that's, that wasn't his area of expertise at the time. I mean, I think he said, didn't he, that his, he was more of just like a, an overall kind of the CEO of Inslaw. Um, he wasn't right hands-on with uh, promise and, and coding or anything like that. So I guess he would have had a, a broader view of the whole thing rather than a nuts and bolts view. At least on this project. Yes. We, yeah. One of the things we, that we do ask him is I was curious of okay so how much of the code base did did he write um, and and his answer was, was you know it's like oh okay yeah this is this is you know entire you know entirely reasonable under understandable but no he didn't write any of the code base because that wasn't his role in this project um, the guy I mean clearly is a computer programmer of of you know at least some ability and probably very good ability. Um, as we, as we, as he disclosed in some other, other discussions, but no, in this particular project, he was the, almost he was something much rarer, which was an actual competent project manager. Um, so I think it's, it's interesting that again, he, he had a, an idea for this really game changing software and he was able to realize that vision. This is, um, a bit of a, a random thought, a random memory that's just occurred to me. But do you remember when I was kind of really going off the deep end uh, while we were putting this together? And I was actually considering buying Promise, like buying the new version of Promise just for my laptop, just to see what it could do. Exactly. It's, it's you know, really you type Promise online and, and there's 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 a million hits and, and, and a whole bunch of those are people trying to sell you one or, or one or another versions of it. Yeah, this was the thing that was the hardest for me to get my head around. And now I do understand it. I don't know why I struggled with it for so long. I think we've made it pretty clear in the series, but yeah, there are many different versions of Promise and the Promise that Inslaw developed. Um, they went through a couple of versions themselves of Promise. And so I, I, I didn't expect that I would be buying like this bugged, uh, souped up CIA spooky promise. I just wanted to get the program just to see what it could do. But then in kind of reading around more and coming to understand it more, I was actually amazed to find that what it was pioneering at the time is actually fairly standard on, it's a database administration tool and a tracker. So it's pretty standard on every single computer now. It's just not called promise. You know, it's a different program, but it does functionally the same thing, you know helps you find files and cross-reference shit and stuff like that. So I didn't really need to buy it in the end, but <laughs> I was going, I think I was going full method at that point. I really wanted to get into the, the vibe. Mm. And I guess it's, you know, had you bought it, um, there really wouldn't have been, I think, all that many 
revelations you would have taken from it because you you don't you wouldn't have had the data sets yeah i mean i would need a big database to administrate when i and it's kind of what mm-hmm. you have the search function for anyway on a laptop <laughs> so yeah but discussing just i guess what promise did and and how it has it's been superseded by ordinary functions in modern day systems i still think that that there were and you know there were and are some aspects of it that that we still you know you still don't find out there oh yeah um, yeah yeah commonly i'd say or or um or that it was definitely far 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 ahead of the field at the time um and this is you know i think we we brought this up in the first episode uh something that i thought you know something that at least jumped out to me when i was doing the research was the ability for it to um, for it to improve essentially your operations because of its reporting and analytical tools. Um, and this is this is actually something that when we asked Bill Hamilton um, what he find what he thinks is the greatest technical achievement was um, is one of part of his answer was this um, this reporting and analysis function. That allows the the user to improve their organization based upon the the data that is being fed into it. There was something about the uh, predictive modifications, you know, that was supposedly added to it by the Israelis and and so on. And I remember sort of chasing them down, and it kind of got a bit complicated for me. And I was like, I I buy that they had some software they could maybe merge meld with it or something but it was hard keeping it straight in my head that you have promise and then you have whatever other shit was developed that was added to it you know but promise was always kind of used in conjunction with these other things that get called promise you know like in the i suppose the conspiracy literature or whatever mm-hmm. and, and i think i might have explained it once i don't think it ever made it into an episode but Maybe something you can conceptualize it as is so you have a you have an application open, you're working on something, you save that project or you save that file, and then you go and you open that that file or that project in a different program. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there was one answer he gave that I was very happy with because um, I've I've started to feel very sort of I started to feel more and more sort of sympathetic towards him as the series went on, which is when I asked him about Michael Reconosciuto and um, if he still felt like Rika was a reliable guy. And uh, Bill, it's a pretty short answer he gave. He said, yes, his information has been confirmed many times as being reliable. He was an insider at one time in the government's malfeasance because of his impressive intelligence. Um, so I was quite pleased with that. I mean, um, because I don't know. I've just, I've I waffle back and forth constantly on Michael Reconosciuto, but I'm glad Bill Hamilton still believes in him. Does that make sense? Even if I have my own doubts. <laughs> yeah, it's you know a lot of people have fled from Michael Reconosciuto's corner. What? But one of the people that is still there, interestingly enough, is Bill Hamilton. Yep. Yep. You can't blame him really because I suppose they were they were in it together more or less from the beginning. You know, like they I guess they only found each other like towards the end of the nineteen eighties, but um they were both definitely sort of in Bill's case unwillingly. They were both connected to whatever this thing was that was uh going on in the nineteen eighties. So yeah. It's cool that Bill still uh yeah. Bill's still uh, in his corner, I suppose. Mm-hmm. He still, yeah, he still keeps the still keeps the candle lit. Um, but also of, of, I guess Bill Hamilton, st- you know, still even as of you know, twenty twenty three, when we asked him these questions, saying that yes, he's reliable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I found that interesting. It does make Michael Reconosciuto's later stories, you know, particularly of like the one of essentially him trying to tip off the FBI that 9-11 was going to happen. 
Ah, right. Seriously, I I had to stop thinking about that after a bit because I knew if if I kept thinking about it, I was going to drive myself insane. Like, so I I had to just put it in a mental filing cabinet and sort of walk away from it. So so again, you have that story, and then now we have again someone whose opinion and and views that we that we respect and trust saying that the guy who is telling this crazy story has conf- you know has been confirmed many times as being reliable um of course that doesn't that doesn't necessarily mean that you know he was reliable 100% of the time but still it, it's a it makes me believe that that tip off story a bit more or at least be willing to accept. Yeah, I, because when I went back and read it, the way he words it um, is plausible because he doesn't. Yeah, because he doesn't explicitly say, you know, like uh, there are some guys who work for Al Qaeda and they're planning to hijack four airplanes and fly them into buildings. He he relays it more as some some rumor that he has picked up on the underworld grapevine. You know, that there is some kind of major attack coming in America this year, 2001. And he's trying to tip the FBI off about that. And he has some vague information that makes me believe it more than if he did have specifics or if it was being reported that he had specifics. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It, it fits in with a an existing pattern of other people like him or in similar situations or just Again, with the same ear to the ground, to the, or you know, of hearing bits and pieces, and really putting together, putting the putting the bits and pieces together in the only way that they can come together, and having the same revelation. I thought it it did make additional sense as well, just in reading through uh, the I suppose the the foreknowledge of nine eleven and. It was kind of an open secret in intelligence circles that something big was coming. So it makes sense if he still had friends. And I assume he will have still had some friends at that point. It's only 10 years after he got sent down. I assume that he may have been visited by somebody who just mentioned in passing that they'd heard something. You know, they'd heard something from somebody else who'd heard something. And it makes sense then. The way he's telling it sounds like something he picked up, you know, that by third, fourth hand. And as I recall, correct me on this if I'm wrong, is part of his information actually came from like he met two guys in prison or something like that. And these two guys were actually somehow, you know, they were the they were the the ones who were the conduit. They were they were somehow, you know, it's like one of, you know, I would say okay. hijackers like brother, the brother-in-law's um, uh, uh, power company meter checker guy. Yeah, they they were connected in some really roundabout, indirect way in his telling. Um, but I don't know if he ever gave a name. That's the only thing. I'd have to dig all the, the documents up again. Um, the only problem is um, I have I am my phone is fucking full of octopus shit now. So I'd probably have to spend about an hour just like. <laughs> like scrolling through my phone trying to find the uh the stuff but um yeah if i can i'll try and put the screen grabs up on the patreon or something um people can have a look at it and make of it what they will on that same topic did, did you want to chat at all about robert booth nichols and the twenty five thousand dollars? yeah because yeah yeah gone recount the story of the twenty five thousand dollars. so Something that we had mentioned or discussed in episode three or four was conversing about the the events of how Robert Booth Nichols was introduced to the Hamiltons, to Inslaw, and then how they also stopped working together. Because that was part of the the story as as I had understand as I understood it. It was Robert Booth Nichols was was introduced. And then somehow the relationship fell apart, fell apart. So in one of the memorandum, I guess, that is now actually it's available on archive.org, uh, was a 
a memo to file by a guy named um, uh, Ned Fries, who was an investigator attached to one of the House, um, U.S. House investigations into Inslaw. And in this memo, he recounts a story, and he claims that he heard it from Bill Hamilton. He's, he's very clear on He's explicit in this, and that he heard this from Bill Hamilton, that Robert Booth Nichols was trying to get $25,000 out of Bill Hamilton in exchange for, and, and then Robert Booth Nichols would be able to give Bill Hamilton additional information, and Bill not not necessarily being unwilling to pay the guy the money, but of saying, well, geez, can you, can you show me the information first so I actually know it's legitimate and then, then I'll pay you, you know? Um, and, and that, and that deal never going through. And then, and then that is kind of how Robert Booth Nichols leaves the story. And, and again, this is, this is, we just, we discussed this in episode three or four. And so one of the questions I asked Bill Hamilton, because it was rather, you know, it's just something sticky in my mind of like, geez, you know, what did, you know, tell us more about this story, about the, the 25K. Um, and his answer was, I wasn't expecting the answer that, that he gave, um, which is, I will quote it in it because it's very short. Um, I assume I would have known about such, about any such request and I have never heard anything similar to that. So total disavowal. I mean, it's kind of emblematic of like so many of these little side alleys in this story. I sometimes find that, well, it's, I think it's true quite often that history that happened longer ago is a lot easier to nail down facts for. And this might sound like a small detail, but it is the kind of thing that can drive you batshit when you can't nail down a little detail like this, it starts making you question the other things surrounding it. Um, and I don't know if it's because, you know, say something that happened in the 1950s will have had, you know, more and more researchers over the years, like nailing down those particulars. It probably is that. Whereas this, particularly because it's now seen as a kind of uh, a fringe concern, the, the promise story in the Inslaw affair. So it gets very hard to nail down these little details, but it's quite a significant one because we're told that this is the reason why uh, RBN walked away from Inslaw and Hamilton, and yet this didn't apparently happen. So it, it creates another mystery, which is, well, why did he leave? You know, Had I, had I been a, um, what, a more experienced interviewer at the time, I may have actually asked um, Bill Hamilton that question. But I, I, I wasn't thinking about that at the time. Because I thought I I thought I already knew why, um, and and again when I when we got the answer essentially of this disavowal, yeah, it it drove me crazy for a while because I was thinking, well, geez, did I did I just make this up? You know, was I just you know categor you know categorically mistaken about something else? You know, was this a was this like a, a crossed wire from uh, uh, Danny Casalero because? Like there's a $25,000 amount that comes up in his story. Um, but eventually being able to track this down, um, you know, and, I, and, and have it in, in, in black and white, you know, the, the memo to file from the investigator. Right. I, I have a theory here, right? And I can throw this out there because um, as far as we know, Robert Booth Nichols is dead now, as far as we know. Um, I think that he did have something to do with Danny Casalero's death. And I don't think it's a coincidence that he grad he does a slow fade from the Hamilton's lives after Danny dies. Now, I don't know. I'm not saying that he actually killed Danny. I don't know what the fuck happened. But I think that whoever gave this story to the investigator about the $25,000, my, my feeling is this was an excuse that was given for why RBN disappeared after 1991. I, you know, so that they didn't look into his potential connections, I suppose, to, uh, to whatever it was that happened to Danny. Mm, I see. Yeah. It, in other words, there was a, there was a plausible reason for, for why the guy kind of falls out of the story. 
even though he had previously been really involved in the story. Yeah, yeah. And it's the same with uh, Ted Gunderson as well. I Again, I don't think he had anything to do with Danny's death, but he disappears around the early 90s as well. And I think that it was because whatever he had been dispatched to do, he'd either achieved it, which I think probably was like, you know, shit cut in the story, or um, whatever his objective was, he... he yeah, he just, he couldn't achieve it. So then he disappears as well. Um, but yeah, I, I think that makes the most sense is RBN knew he needed to get the fuck out of Dodge because of what happened to Danny. And this story about the $25,000, it it's the kind of story that you would make up about yourself because it seems plausible. Nobody would make themselves out to be a douchebag like that, you know, asking for 25 grand and getting rejected. Um, so it, that's why I think he probably may have made that story of himself and had someone feed it to the investigators. Mm-hmm. And it's an example of, I guess, the, the fragility of official documents is that then the investigator essentially wrote it down wrong. Yeah. I mean, this is the thing that I've tried, I tried to keep in mind, like all the way through this for as good and exhaustive as like the, uh, the archive is with all the documentation that it's got. Even the people who weren't directly connected to the story are still kind of, they're part of the system, you know, so they themselves, even unconsciously have reasons to uh, relay certain information and and withhold certain other information, you know. Um, I guess that's a, a big reason why this story is so fucking intriguing because so much of it is up for debate and so much of it is ambiguous, you know, and very murky. I've got to say, though, I'm, I was, I also, I was rather pleased that of the things that we discussed in the podcast, probably the one thing that was, that where we, where we said something that, that, that wasn't actually, you know, be able to, to be backed by, um, by sources was, was. Yeah. We took a leap of faith. Yeah. Was this event. So (laughs) everything else, um, uh, past the past the smell test with fine colors. It was just this one little side anecdote. <laughs> That's not bad at all. When you're dealing with something like this, especially the fucking the Inslaw affair, that's not bad at all, really. That we got this detail wrong. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot. We asked him a lot of stuff about like the programming language and stuff, but I feel like we we covered that pretty well in episodes one and two. Um, I mean, we even got like the the size of the code base and stuff correct. So I'm pretty, I don't think we need to rehash that. Um, But one thing I wish I'd have asked him about is P-Tech because I meant to ask him about it. I was going to ask him about it and then I just, I didn't. And I don't know why really. Um, I think I just slipped my mind, you know, in the rush to get stuff finished. Um, but I wish I asked, I, I had asked him more um, about that, about P-Tech. Because certainly, according to Indira Singh, who, again, I know, kind of a, a questionable source, but according to her, it was Promise. It was just a kind of nifty, upgraded version of Promise. But P-Tech software was Promise. It wouldn't be the first time. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, um, so some of the... What do you think? Well, I, actually, I have. Uh, maybe this is kind of you know, an excellent, good way to close out. Is um, I again? I, I was interested in in what Bill Hamilton was thinking at the time. One of the questions that we asked and you know discussed in earlier episodes was essentially when did when did Inslaw know that the game was rigged? Really, because it's it's the guy. The guy had to, you know. I mean, as he says, he eventually realized it. You know, it came to him. Um, and we ask him that explicitly: of of when when did you smell a rat? And there is a moment that that he describes. Do you want do you want to do you want to read that or do you want to? Um, yep, I'll um, I'll read that out now. So. We ask, can you recall a moment where you smelled a rat, something, or a collection of things that made you think the fix is in? 
And Bill said, um, when the DOJ forcibly removed its successful incumbent promise contracting officer, Miss Betty Smith, and its incumbent woman promise project manager, whose name I cannot immediately recall, and replaced the first with Peter Videniex from US Customs, we discussed him in chapter one, and replaced the incumbent promise project manager with C. Madison Brewer likewise, whom I had fired years earlier from Inslaw for his lack of competence as a lawyer, trying to explain promise to prosecutors. I fucking love that. Oh, so I love much. that. Because it's, you know, I, I remember, again, doing the research like around episode one and two. And, you know, you hearing about this C. Madison Brewer and how he worked for Inslaw and then was fired because um, he was, gen- you know, he was general counsel and as as I as it as it was in my mind, it was like, yeah, he was general counsel. His job was to generally counsel the people in his Rolodex to buy promise, and he couldn't do it. So, yeah, he, and you know, he he was and then and so he was fired, and and then he started and he ground that axe for for years and years and years. There is so much like axe grinding in this story as well. Like, I mean, you know, Bill. All due respect, you know, lovely of the guy to uh, respond to our questions, but fucking hell. I don't blame him, but yeah, he has a lot of axes to grind. Um, fucking C. Madison Brewer as well. Michael Reconosciuto, right? It's just it's just axe grinding all the way down, man. Grievances, yeah. Yeah. Um, also, side note, uh, C. Madison Brewer is nicknamed Brick Brewer. And the names in this story are also incredible. We've got Brick Brewer, Norm Augustin, Pug Winnaker, Buzzy Krongard, Michael Reconosciuto. Um, it's just some Sapinchin-esque uh, rugs gallery, really. <laughs> um, so one of the, the follow-up questions to, of, okay, so he smelled a rat. Um, you know, essentially of... of why didn't you walk away? Um, and I think this is this is where it it addresses his his worldview, you know, his his ideology, um, you know, and of that. And I'll and I'll, and I'll quote it. Um, I had no idea that the Department of Justice was engaged in venality by enabling businesses affiliated with political friends to covertly sell and distribute our computer software for their personal financial gain. I was shocked when I began to finally learn what had been going on. Um, so as, I, as, as I'm reading his answer of, of essentially of, of him, it not almost being in his, in his, like, his what, mental toolbox to conceptualize the Justice Department was crooked. Yeah, it, it had not entered his um, mind that this was a possibility. And and essentially, by the time he realizes what has happened, and you know, and what happened, it was too late. The ship had sailed. They really walked into a lion's den, didn't they? Um, I think I said that in like the first or second episode, but it's so. We asked the guy, and I still don't understand how he didn't see this coming. But I guess, you know, we've said it already, but that's what made him so suitable to work, you know, at the NSA is that he never conceived that this might happen. He was not that type of person at the time. And they're just as useful as the the cynical operators, you know, in a sense. You could almost say this is this is one of the things that made the the overall intelligence operation such a success is that they picked the right person to rip off. And what they ripped off was something of of colossal value.
now that we've kind of we've completed the journey and we've fucking hell it's been like a year in the planning and the the execution like what are your do you have any final thoughts like um overriding thoughts about the whole thing um or is there anything that you wish we'd gone deeper on you know and you maybe want to uh loop back to it now i would have liked to go into some greater details on where promise appeared in other nations. Um, I would have liked to have looked at more of the aspects of the of the Canadian case, which is almost you could just spend almost like an entire episode or more than that on just the the how that began and how it unfolded because that's that's very fascinating. Um, For me, I guess I'd want to. I wish that. Um, we'd have had the time or the space really to get into some of the other murders that happened like around the turn of the millennium, you know, and up through to like 2010, 11. I think Nathan, um, I'll be including this in the the references, but there's a reporter called Nathan Backer um, who did a really good investigative series. Um, It's free on YouTube to watch, little three, four minute clips. And he begins by tracing these murders that happened in like the late 2000s in California and connects them eventually to, uh, yeah, the Inslaw affair. I wish we'd have had a bit more time to get into all that. Maybe, well, like, loop back to it at some point down the road. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. That there were, that although we did list out, I think, some of potentially, you know, promise uh, theft-involved murders in, in one of the episodes, it's, that was just a fraction of it. A whole lot of people, you could legitimately say, they died because they were involved to some degree in how promise was was stolen, how it was communicated, um, and how that how both of those things were were hidden. Yeah, yeah. I mean, speaking of. Um tracking where promise went um i looked and looked for more information on what it was doing in uh saddam's iraq uh they apparently sold it to him um and he was using it for the uh the iraqi army um so i i i don't know i i i wish i could have found more out about that and how it was actually used or if he knew he had the bug copy of it or what because i know he was an american ally at one time so did they trick him into buying a bug copy or did they tell him, oh, this will really help with a intelligence collection? I don't know. Um, was it one, you know, one of the many things that he was given or, or sold at a great price, like, like all of his chemical weapons? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it, the whole thing. And there's all you can only it becomes a thing where you can only really talk about it in cliches because it's so big and vast. Yeah, so you you lean on it's a rabbit hole or you know it's a a maze or it's this or it's that, um, and I don't know. I feel like theoretically someday somebody is going to start a podcast that is purely about promise, you know, and it never really it, they never really have to shift off that topic because it connects to so much other shit. Um, that podcast will be coming eventually. Someone's going to make it. Um, Next, on that note, it's I would have liked to have been able to better describe both how the hardware was gimmicked to be a transmitter, and then how the how the software was then modified to permit um, surveillance or 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 covert access or. Whatever, and and I think this this really this goes back into the the descriptions of how promise was used in other nations, because the with each of those comes a slightly different story of how promise was was the trapdoor essentially was configured. You know, in some cases it's well, geez, it's 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 radioing the information out. Um, in others, it's. Um, it's actually no. It's connected to a phone line, and it's making calls. Um, 
Another one is that, oh, essentially that, that we just, we created a, a, a user account and the user happens to be a, you know, um, uh, some other spy. You know, essentially it's like there's another user account in there and they just gave someone else the credit, you know, they just gave the person that, that they were actually, you know, this entire uh, project was, was designed to support. They just gave him the, you know, gave him the, the credentials. I'm curious about your uh, your final thoughts then, like on the whole story, um, the uh, the journey we've been on, I guess. <sighs> it's hard. That's a hard uh, request to make, really. No, it, it, almost it's 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 a trite thing to say that, um, you know what? When I when I when I didn't know anything, you know, or, or rather of of, it's a trite thing to say that that the more you know, the less you understand. And that I still have a whole bunch of unanswered questions. Of course, those unanswered questions, I guess, it's they're, they're at a different level and, and they're, they're about different things. And I can, I can better describe certain aspects of this. But yeah, I still have a lot of questions that can, that will never and can never be answered. Yeah, I mean, at a certain point, I think... I mean, you said it best, like at a certain point, you just have to kind of go outside and <laughs> embrace the mystery, you know? Um, and it's it's the, the kind of thing where for as, as decent a job I think we've done of trying to kind of demystify it and cut through a lot of the, the chaff and the white noise, even in doing that, you still unearth other you know, mysteries and other puzzles that, you know, it'll have to fall to somebody else to try and, and work out what to make of that. Um, but for me, I think it's, it hasn't shocked me so much as confirmed a lot of uh, notions that I already had about just how corrupt um, the system is really, you know. And I think in some ways it was quite dispiriting because I thought, it, it's bad, you know, but maybe I'll find some stuff in this story that, uh, you know, gives us a bit of hope or something. But yeah, it was in some ways it was quite depressing at certain points, just realizing how deep the rot is really. Yeah. It's like, yes, there really was this organized conspiracy to steal yep. the software and, and make a whole bunch of money and ruin these people's lives and murder these other people's lives. And, and, and all the perpetrators got away with it. All of them. Yeah. Yeah. They, they got away with it and they, and they got away with it with full bank accounts. Yep. Yeah. Um, John, I feel like there's, I don't, I, I hate, I know, I don't know why, but this has become a thing with left podcasts where they talk about the lathe, you know, the lathe of heaven and shit. And I don't want to be one of those fucking podcasters, but while we've been doing this series, there have been some weird things that have happened in, in the, the zeitgeist almost. And it feels like we just accidentally kind of plugged into it. Um, so the, the fucking cocaine bear movie, um, which I, I had no idea that was coming out until like two weeks after I brought out the company episode. And I was like, Oh shit. Like, you know, and, uh, genius marketer that I am, I, I failed completely to, uh, capitalize on it in any way. Um, and then when we did the where did promise go and what did it become and i've got this theory that palantir is likely built off a lot of the uh promise software or the very least like inspired by it peter Thiel's um i don't know what you would call him uh concubine died took a header off a, a balcony or something did you hear about that oh yes i heard of that yeah yeah and apparently, I guess, and it's like, this isn't the first time this has happened. It's not the first time it's happened, man. And I was like, fuck, it's like, it's just interesting how the, these things are happening in the culture at the moment that kind of reflects what we're doing. But then again, we've been fucking doing this since like August. So maybe it's not that surprising, but um, yeah, it, the whole thing just kind of um, has been an interesting exploration really. And um yeah, I've loved the knife edge of sometimes not really knowing how true something is and kind of learning that that is part of the story as well, you know, the ambiguity, I suppose. Yes. Well, hopefully we were able to dispel some of that ambiguity. Hell yeah, man. I mean, um, 
I have to say as well, just like while I've still got you, like could not have chosen a better partner to investigate this case with, man. I feel like we've brought it home quite nicely. Oh. No, I, I, yeah, I, I, I appreciate that, and and I've got to say it. Yeah, I, I, I have the same, the same praise. I, I, I didn't know how this was going to end up when we first started talking about this so long ago. I was, you know, I was just someone that that wanted essentially just to talk about promise because, you know, have that need to talk about promise. Um, and 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 you were a guy with a good podcast. Oh, cheers, man. Yeah. I think it worked quite nicely as well in terms of like, you know, the technical stuff and, and I don't. So <laughs> I could, I could kind of be like the, I guess the audience proxy or something like asking the questions and uh, hoping, hoping that they weren't too uh, dense or whatever. We were stronger together than, than apart. Yeah. Yeah. Hell yeah, man. Um, well, I guess that'll do it then. So this was, um, I guess the octopus epilogue. Um, and I want to give a massive thanks to Ben actually for just spending the last, I mean, we've been, we were planning it from April or something last year, but we've been chatting about it for like months before that. So this has been like 18 months in the making or something, this entire series. So yeah, yeah. man, like I was gonna say, yeah, I was approaching two years. Yeah. Huge props, dude, just for uh, sticking with us and being so much help and uh, being such good company as well on the journey. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and again, thank you for cleaning up um, the things I have to say in, in <laughs> editing magic so that I don't sound like a total idiot who just steps on their tongue all the time. Anytime, man. Anytime. So I guess that'll uh, that'll do us then. Yeah. I think we've, we've, we've said all that we need to say. Yeah. Yeah. 